Welcome everyone to the Genetics Podcast. I'm really excited to be here today with Harold Varmus, the Nobel Prize winning scientist and former director of the National Institutes of Health, president of Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center and director of the National Cancer Institute, amongst other things. Today, Professor Varmus is, is at Weill Cornell Medicine and he's a senior mm -hmm. associate at the New York Genome Center. Harold was awarded the Nobel Prize in Physiology and medicine in 1989 for his role in the discovery of the cellular origin of retroviral oncogenes. We're going to talk about that today. And he's made significant contributions to the field of cancer biology writ large throughout his career. So Harold, I'd love actually to just start with a quote that jumped out for me when I read your book, which is called The Art and Politics of Science. And I also later watched, it, watched your speech from the Nobel lecture. The quote is, we recognize that unlike Beowulf at the Hall of Rothgar, we have not slain our enemy, the cancer cell. In our adventures, we've only seen the monster more clearly and described his scales and fangs in new ways, ways that reveal a cancer cell to be like Grendel, a distorted version of our normal selves. I love that quote. And before we go into the science behind the prize, I'd love if you could just talk through the origin story of why you decided to have a Beowulf quote in your Nobel Prize acceptance speech, because I think it's a it's a really important entree and origin into your scientific career more broadly. Yeah, well, thank you very much. And nice to be on the show. Of course, that quote had a lot to do with an attempt to reflect my own career development because I began life as an English major and studied English literature, graduate school, learned Anglo-Saxon. And here I was receiving a prize in a Scandinavian hall. And what could be more similar to what we had done with cancer than what Beowulf had done in, in, in his battles against Grendel and Grendel's mother. So it was an apt quote to describe where we were, I thought, and I think that's still true with, with, with the discovery of things that would matter to cancer patients. And it made a connection between me and my hosts and me and my own, my own career trajectory. And before we go too deep into the science behind the prize, I wonder if you could take us back to the moment that you actually got the call about the prize. What what did that feel like? I'm and sorry, that's kind of a boring you? question for you. <laughs> that's the question I always get asked. And, you know, yeah, obviously, I was pleased. I, I don't think the vast majority of people that receive Nobel Prizes are, are generally not tremendously surprised. They've won other prizes. They know this is a possibility. They're gratified it's come to pass. The key thing is not how you respond to that telephone call, but what you do with it thereafter. And I'm acutely aware of how many people seem to stop doing science and go on a prolonged Nobel circuit. And my own view is that it happened. It made a big difference in my life. It made me prominent. And I probably never would have been director of NIH or done some other things that I did without that little trinket. So it's a very useful thing to have as, a, as an assist in life. I've tried to keep life under control and continue to do science and take on responsibilities and not shroud myself in glory because, you know, one good thing about the time that I received the prize is that I was relatively young. I still had quite a large number of years ahead of me to, attempting to do science and provide some help to the scientific community that made my life in science possible. So maybe you could just tell us a little bit about what the work was that you did that led to the prize. But then I also want to hear what's changed between now and then, and a little bit about sure. your, your work that you're focused on oh. now. Well, it's interesting. You, you described me as a cancer biologist, and I do tend to describe myself that way. But I got into this business of trying to understand cancer as a virologist. Let's face it, I was, I was trained as an MD who had a background in English literature. But when the, the Vietnam War was raging, 
all American physicians were obliged to do some kind of public service. Those of us who were fiercely opposed to the war attempted to find some way to, to fulfill their national responsibilities by working in the public health service. And I was lucky, despite having a minimum amount of scientific training, to get a position at the NIH. And that introduced me to molecular biology and the, and the tools that were becoming available for studying how, how genes are regulated. During my time there, I took many courses, some of which introduced me to new concepts in cancer research. And the one thing that I could see pretty clearly is that if at that time before recombinant DNA technology and molecular cloning and genomics were available, that if you want to understand the genetic origins of cancer, which I thought was the right way to think about the problem, you had to make use of small viruses, both those that carried their genomes as RNA and those that carried them as DNA, and try to figure out whether there was some clue there to how a few cells could could go awry and, and undermine the behavior of, a, of, a, of an animal or a human cell. So I, after my two years at the NIH working on gene regulation in bacteria, I began working with tumor viruses in California, studying mainly chicken virus, the rouse sarcoma virus, and realizing that because of the way these viruses grew, their ability to make DNA copies of their RNA genome, and because of the fact they carried a single gene that seemed to be sufficient for transforming normal chicken cells, that there were, there were tools there that would allow me to look and see if the genes that the virus used to make cells malignant were also present in, in, in normal animal cells. And it turned out they were, and with many interesting twists and turns, the genes weren't identical. They were just very similar change by mutations that make, made the genes malignant. But in a sense, we were beginning a, a kind of a mini genome project because there were lots of viruses of the same class, the class we know as retroviruses, that carried genes from normal cells, uh, trans changed them in some way to make them behave in an oncogenic fashion. And over the course of many years, we, our, our group, Mike Bishop and I, and our and and many colleagues around the world began studying retroviruses from that point of view and identifying the normal cellular genes that gave rise to the viral oncogenes. And that that delivered to us way, way before any genome project did so, a set of genes that proved to be important in human cancer. When we think about the epidermal growth factor receptor and the RAS genes and the MYC genes and many others, they all came they were all delivered into our hands by the study of retroviruses that, that Mike and I began oh, about almost 50 years ago. What was it that you were working on then that you feel like has really moved on leaps and bounds? And then on the flip side, what are the things that have remained stubborn where you and your colleagues were working on it and trying to understand it back then? Yeah, well, and you a, feel like we haven't made as much progress? No, that's a good question. You know, it's hard to actually reflect back in exactly that way. But but I would say that what has progressed dramatically is defining the human genome and looking for genes that play a role in cancer. We haven't finished that by any means. There's a tremendous portion of the genome we call the dark genome or the non-coding genome that really has not been plowed adequately for evidence that it plays some role. I think we know many, if not most, or certainly not all, of the genes that play a direct role in, in cancer. And those genes come in many forms as, as oncogenes of the kind we were just discussing, as tumor suppressor genes, 
as genes that play some role in cell metabolism or DNA repair and other, other ways that may act indirectly in the control of cancer, genes that govern the immune system, for example. Certainly, immunotherapy of cancer was only a pipe dream at that point and largely disparaged, but now we realize that one of our best tools is immunotherapy. And I would say that the kinds of therapies we were envisioning, therapies that interfere with the function of the genes that resemble the or are identical to the genes we were, just, we were studying as retrovirologists, have yet to be the source of, of cures. They, they've made tremendous progress or allowed us to make tremendous progress in, in controlling cancer and sometimes controlling it for a lifetime. Uh, but the, the goal of, of completely extinguishing a cancer by using a, an anti oncogene therapy has not yet been realized. And there are many aspects of cancer physiology, especially cancer prevention, that remain undeciphered. How about metastasis? I've heard you talk about this before as one of the areas that maybe has, has, hasn't changed much yeah. in 50 years, or, or we made some progress, but it's- We made some stubborn. progress, but I, you know, I agree. I mean, anybody who is looking at the treatment of cancer these days will understand that our best bet for or curing cancer is still removing it surgically. Once metastatic disease arises, the problem is more difficult. And we've had some remarkable su successes in the last several years. We're trying to treat certain types of cancer that can be treated with immunotherapy. And there have been some treatments there that I would consider to be cures, even though the cancer is widespread in melanomas and lymphomas and so forth. But, but uh, you know, part of this reflects our an ability to completely understand the way in which cancer arises, how it changes. And these days, there's a great deal of attention in my lab and others being given to what we call plasticity, the way a cancer can undergo pretty dramatic changes. Something that the public is increasingly understanding as a result of COVID. COVID has had a huge educational effect on the public, in my view. I know there are a lot of people we, we we bemoan because they have used the experience of the pandemic to deride science and criticize the way in which scientific information is, has been provided and, and, and communicated. But uh, people have also grasped many important ideas about how biological systems change as a result of, of random alterations in the, in the genomes of organisms. And I think people now understand that cancer itself is made up of many different cells, and those cells can undergo changes we often refer to as plasticity, and they change their behavior. They, genes are altered, the readout of genes has changed, and gene, cancer cells begin, begin to behave in new ways. They avoid the immune system. They stop responding to drugs that are targeted against specific cancer genes. And I think there's a, a new level of appreciation of how that the genomes are not written in concrete and that the Darwinism is an incredibly lively subject and one that is still the the basis for understanding how biological systems work. Is this one of the reasons cancer has been so tricky is that it's just so fundamental to it's fundamentally tied up in evolution and it's one of the most complex so, forces we know. It's certainly one of the one of the reasons there are other reasons having to do with the complexity of cancers the fact that even though cancers have commonalities they also have uniqueness and every cancer is fundamentally different. We still don't understand many of the predisposing factors. We know a few genes that are whose mutations can be inherited to confer a high risk, but but for people who don't belong to those high risk groups, what determines whether someone gets cancer or not is the result of a 
a multiplicity of factors having to do with exposures, with, with the sheer random chance that any time a cell divides, it's likely to make a mistake. And then there are more subtle inherited influences that we don't understand yet. But obviously, if we could tell everybody what they're at high risk, we could do a better job in trying to survey people for the appearance of cancers at early stages. And that is obviously one of the major goals of modern research, including research in genomics. I keep coming back to genomics. I know your show tends to focus on genomic issues. And you know, one of the current dreams is that we'll be using a blood test to look for, for mutant genes that'll tell us about, that tell us that somebody has a cancer that's beginning to develop and could be approached now. But the fact is that there are going to be a lot of false positives, a lot of misleading information. Therapies are not developed yet for treating cancers at very early stages, especially if you don't know exactly where the cancer is. So there's a lot between here and there, the here being having all these tools that seem attractive and powerful and tempting, and being able to do something that actually provides public benefit in treatment or prevention. Yeah, I think it's a good segue into one of the projects that you're helping to lead, which is the New York Genome Center's Polyethnic 1000 Genomes Project. I'd love to hear a little bit more about this, the origins. And and I, I thought it was interesting that you're focused on the hereditary aspects of cancer in particular, and you've been involved in at the helm of many major tumor-focused projects like TCGA and others. So how did this come about? And and maybe you can tell everybody about the focus. Right. Well, what but, but, but you're hearing from Patrick is an acronym TCGA, which was a um, large-scale study carried out by the National Cancer Institute. I didn't begin the study. I advised about it and then oversaw the study during my time as director of the National Cancer Institute. And that was a study designed simply to lay out the basic groundwork, that is, what kinds of mutations tended to be found in, in the most common kinds of cancers in the American population. And we were not alone in doing that. In Britain and France and other places, similar studies were being carried out just to get an idea of the genomic landscape and, and the common cancers. And that was important, but people tended to focus on getting samples from, from patients who commonly went to teaching hospitals. The vast majority of the patients were European ancestry. And the result was that we got a picture of cancer as it exists in the most, among the most privileged peoples of the world, but we were not seeing the, the, the genomic profiles of cancers and predisposing variations in the genome in other parts of the world, Asia, South America, Africa. And when I was one during my time, which is now about eight years of working at the New York Genome Center, we realized that one of the things that we were particularly equipped to do because of the genetic expertise at the, at the Genome Center, and in part because New York is such a, such a genetically disparate population, that we had, a, we had the opportunity by working together with the many hospitals that are scattered throughout the, the New York City region to try to put together a cancer genome project that was targeted specifically to people who were not Western Europeans. And by building a consortium of hospitals and medical centers and research institutions throughout New York, and by raising a little bit of money from local philanthropists, we were able to at least initiate and provide the, the seed for a larger effort to try to study cancer as it, as it occurs in the neglected or relatively neglected populations of the world. So this has been running for some years um, and has produced a demonstration that, that we can 
work with these populations and build databases of, of cancer-related genomic information from previously understudied individuals. But now the, the game is going to go on, I hope, at a much greater scale because a, a study, a program that was initiated by the National Cancer Institute in collaboration with Cancer Research UK has put together a grand challenges program that just now includes a competition for much larger awards than we've had available for our studies to study, to bring equity to, to cancer research and pay more attention to many aspects of, of cancer and its both its biology and its sociology that are responsible for the disparities in outcome, because there's no doubt that in America, a Black patient has a less good chance of being diagnosed, properly treated, so forth. And there are many reasons why the outcomes are not so good. The, the disease can be different. The onset can be different. The, the, the genetic repertoire that, that, that drives the cancer may be different. And so there are issues that range from the sociological and educational, the deployment of resources to treat and, and detect cancers to a, a failure to study cancers in these other among people of different ancestries to try to understand the genetic basis and physiological outcome of these cancers. If we zoom out a, another order of magnitude or two from New York City to the world, you've been working closely with the World Health Organization focused on accelerating access to genomic technologies around the world. And I think these are hitting at the same central challenge, right? Which is they, they are in a sense. They're in a yeah. sense, but not, there's an important difference that that is our efforts at the at the World Health Organization, where I, I chair the, the science council in the in the in the science directorate of the WHO. Our goal is not it doesn't have a specific target in mind. Yeah. The goal is to try to, to to provide the technologies for everybody. You know, in, in cancer, uh, we probably highlighted to a very a significant degree the the advantages that are that are available to people who can have their cancers analyzed with genomic tools so that we can identify the mutations that are actually driving them and choose the right therapies and decide whether these are good candidates for immunotherapy but when you think about what the WHO can do it's not going to do that research it's not going to provide the medical care but what it can do is to lead a campaign to ensure that that every country has access to these technologies, not just because of medicine, because genomics, as you know very well, is now a, an important ingredient in virtually every aspect of life, whether it's judicial proceedings or studies of ancestries or, or legal, various other kinds of legal proceedings, validation of the source of, of poultry or vegetables yep. or other things that are for sale in the store. And there's no doubt that Every country in an equitable world will have access to at least the, the the applications of these technologies, if not making new discoveries with them. But every aspect of medical science these days is informed by the use of the genomic technologies. They are still relatively expensive, even though we pride ourselves in how much the cost of doing a whole genome analysis has descended. But of course, the first one was always going to be very expensive, and they'd get cheaper and cheaper. But but new kinds of uh, DNA sequencing tools has made the price dropped, dropped to levels that I don't think any of us would have anticipated 20 years ago. So it's important that we do several things to try to emphasize how, how feasible it now is to get even a poor country linked up with people who can help, help it develop genomic power. And that includes having 
advocacy by the WHO, finding ways to implement the things that are needed, which means train people, machines, reagents, laboratories, all of which could be made available through regional collaborations and other things. And then there are, as I'm sure you've discussed on this show, many aspects of ethical, legal, and other kinds of behaviors that are essential to the proper functioning of genomics. Genomics probes our inner secrets. It, it creates ethical dilemmas. And we have to have some learning in, in these areas to be sure that genomics is a technology that is properly handled by people who are exposing their citizens to these, these powerful techniques. What, what do you see as the two or three biggest blockers to widespread adoption in genomics? Is it, is it training? Is it technology? If you had to focus our efforts on a couple of things, what would they be? Yeah, well, you're, you're, I mean, you're hitting the, the, the major points in, in the chapter that we wrote in, in our report on genomics about implementation. And, you know, it's people, having people who understand how to do these things because they, they've become relatively simple, but they're still very complicated. Secondly, you need machinery and reagents to make these things work. And you, you need the cooperation of industry, the commercial sector to, to make it work. And you need the government support and support from organizations like WHO. Happily, many people who practice genomics realize uh, the, the potential it, it has for, for improving lives in poor countries and, and have banded together to create ways to think about how to apply these technologies, how to use them effectively and fairly. The Global Alliance for Genomics and Health is one of those. There's another organization that we've depended on heavily that uh, that addresses genetic medicine in particular, because that is that always tends to be the what's what's most what's shining most brightly in the headlights when when you think about how genomics might be used to to better conditions for living in poor countries. But there are lots of other applications of genomics that are becoming increasingly important and especially in agriculture and aquaculture. And there too, you know, just a matter of getting some trained people together, having some financial support, bringing in advisors. We on the Science Council of WHO are now moving on to new topics. So we're, we're not going to be the genomics group there, but, but the WHO is committed to setting up an, an organization that would be overseeing the implementation of, of genomic technologies throughout the world. And Virtually every country in the world is a member of WHO. It's a good convening body for trying to make dramatic scientific advances that now benefit the rich part of the world available to people who happen to have been born in the poor parts. Over your career, you've you've transitioned, I think, from going a mile deep in or a hundred miles deep in some areas of science. Although I think from reading your biography, you were, you, you, you had quite a curious mind from the very beginning, but I think to win a, to win a Nobel prize, you have, I think we'll agree you have to go a hundred miles deep in one area, but it, it's hard then to go into director positions. And it sounds like the work you're doing with the WHO to switch to a 30,000 foot view across a really broad range of science, but I think you also still go 100 miles deep in some areas. How do you find that context switching? And, and do you like the breadth? Do you like going deep? Or is it the combination of the two that... Oh, I, think, I think both is, is are fun, but you've got to remember that I'm not somebody who relies solely on themselves. I, you know, I recognize science as a highly collaborative activity. One of the reasons it's fun is it's not a solitary person in a white coat in, in, in a room by himself. 
or herself. Instead, it's a, it's a collaborative endeavor. In fact, you could argue that science only thrives when the ideas of single bright individuals become accepted by the community. It's a community activity in which science decides what seems closest to being right about the description of nature. So it is inherently interactive. As, as a member of the, of, the, of the Science Council at WHO, we depend very heavily on experts who come in to testify. So to do our genomics report, for example, you know, even though virtually all of us on the council knew something about genomics, we clearly, clearly need to know a lot more, especially from people who are actually trying to do genomic work in poor countries. So we had a series of workshops brought in experts, even though people often complain about WHO for one reason or another, everybody respects it and everybody recognizes that, that it's an organization that the, the world deeply needs and it has remarkable influence, even though it should have 10 or 100 times more money than it has. But it's, it's able to, to exercise remarkable convening power. What WHO says is often the gold standard and people want to help it out. So we got a lot of help from people who are experts and what's needed to, to implement genomics in a, in, a, in a reasonable way. And we all recognize that there are obstacles to successful implementation, but we do see many paths that would lead to much more use and more successful use of genomics than currently is the case. What have you learned about coordinating large groups of scientists or the, the related question of funding large group of scientists working towards a coordinated aim? You've, you've overseen or at least been part of things like the Human Genome Project, TCGA, and, and a number of projects that we've just talked through. And you've also, re I read your paper from 2014 about rescuing U.S. biomedical research from its systemic flaws. I'm, I'm really curious to hear almost 10 years now on from that work, what, what have you learned about how science is funded and coordinated and, and what are some of the things that are maybe still, still in your sights of things that you'd like to change or, or see others change? Yeah. Well, we haven't fixed things since, since 2014, but things I, I think people are more aware of some of the deficiencies. One of the problems, of course, is that you have to deal with the fact that while people are altruistic and go into science because they want to make the world a better place, people are also leading careers. And one of the places where things get stuck is when people recognize they can't do their work unless they are sufficiently successful to obtain adequate funding, that the, the value judgments we make about who should receive funds, who should receive appointments, who should receive promotions, who should receive prizes are often influenced by the wrong value system, especially publication in a certain, a certain set of journals, and, and that people are reluctant often to collaborate because they're worried about credit. They're worried about being recognized by their peers. So in, in many ways, at least some of the problems, not all of them, but some of them boil down to a question of, of how you build a meritocracy, how science will always be a meritocracy at some level, but what kinds of commitments do we as members of the scientific community make to the value, proper evaluation of people reading their papers, acknowledging that if you can be one of 100 authors in a paper and still make an incredibly profound contribution, and you should be given a way to explain that contribution. So one very simple method that some have adopted, but not all, is to be sure that when people write a curriculum vitae, that they're not simply listing their papers where their name may appear is one of a 
legion of thousands, but instead can have an opportunity to say what they did to make this piece of work, which was a it may have been a, a piece of work carried out by a, an army of hundreds or thousands, was a significant event. And the, the work showed originality and it was a contribution to a very large effort, but uh, nevertheless had real value that would be a value to an institution that is proposing to hire you. And there, there are other ways to think about how to, how to do these things, but I, I think a lot of it comes back to how we evaluate. Obviously, if you're going to accommodate more scientists in the academic sphere, you need there needs to be more money in public institutions that are providing the resources for carrying out the research. But money is, in a sense, the boring answer. We always know that more money. Yeah, we always need more, more things <laughs> to get done. But but the right attitude toward evaluation and the encouragement of people to become less risk averse. Because if you're a young scientist entering, you know, whether you're male or female, black, white, or Hispanic, or Asian, your aspirations may be similar, but you know that the access to the things that will make your life as a scientist possible, that is salary, grant support, access to to smart colleagues, many of these things depend upon your being recognized as somebody who is of value and, and good to include in your own scientific community and to promote their interests. So on the funding issue, if we take increasing out of the equation, because I think we both agree that that a secular increase would be helpful. But if we talk about allocation, what have you learned about small grants, whether tied to a specific program or even an investigator versus large coordinated efforts amongst multiple groups? How do you think about the allocation today of big moonshot projects that organize many people versus funding you know, a thousand flowers to bloom and then seeing what rises to the top. Yeah, well, that, no, it's an important question. I don't have a simple answer to that. I think it is important, though, to include in the equation the kind of science that can and could and sometimes is being done in, in, in the commercial sector, because a lot of things that are being done these days are, you know, large pharma to a certain extent is retreated from fundamental science, but there's a lot of very good basic science being done in startup companies and frequently it's being done by people who simply can't find jobs because there are not a lot of jobs available. So that sector needs attention. And I think the, the willingness of, of the strong startup companies to do fundamental research that gets them to their ultimate goal of producing something that is beneficial and, and valuable financially is something we need to nurture. And we need to to those of us who are academics need to be giving proper credit to the biotech industry that is often the source of some of the most valuable advances that are being made in biomedical science today. I do think there's plenty of room for both small grants to academic investigators and to large consortia. Getting the right balance is the key. And I think that balance is contingent upon identifying projects that can't be done except in in large consortia. Certainly would point to the Human Genome Project as a stellar example of something that that could not have happened in any other way, could not have happened through small grants alone. But it's important as you go to identify the 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 potential for doing better cottage industry science with the tools that something like the, the, the Human Genome Project makes available, because every one of us uses in daily life the products of that research. Which brings me to the the other factor here that is incredibly important, and that is access to information, access to research tools. 
Because if you're going to invest a country's money into building a scientific enterprise, it seems to me critical that that money be supporting information that, that is available to everybody, both as written descriptions of what the work is and what its conclusions are, but also access to the research tools and to the data underlying the research that that's so important for, for continuing to take advantage of what's been done before and not have to reinvent the wheel. So I'm a very strong proponent of, of open science, and especially when the science is paid for by, by citizens of the country through taxation. Yes. And, and I think I know this and, and listeners may not, but one of the other lists of amazing things you've accomplished in your career is co-founding PLOS and also starting PubMed, right? These are things that we scientists today take for granted, but- PubMed um, Central, just to correct Pub, you. PubMed Central. Yeah. May, maybe you could talk, was that, was that challenging to- um, well, usually, Because the, you know, the, the publishing industry made and still makes a ton of money. And, and I don't, I don't I don't stand in opposition to profit making, but I do stand in opposition to to exploiting scientists who are supported by their grants and salaries who end up devoting a lot of time to the industry of reviewing and writing papers that provide the the fodder on which the publication industry does prosper that I don't for a moment deny the 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 good things that publishers do to enhance the and and facilitate the reviewing of papers and the, and the the formatting of papers and distribution of work, but uh, the the profits were excessive and uh, the the costs were really not not a commensurate with the, with the yeah. amount of effort that was being put in by the federal government by academic scientists who were providing the, the material that that was being sold by by the publishers. So. And of course, the other point was to make information available to everybody, scientists or not. And that that open access movement has moved a long way. And very soon, every bit of work sponsored by the U.S. government will be required to be available at the time of release. One of the things that has moved us a lot further is the use of preprints, which was accelerated dramatically by the pandemic, where people suddenly realized, hey, knowing what we know about disease, something really has to be achieved very quickly. And the people are mature enough to recognize that when something has not been peer-reviewed, peer review has advantages. But there's a lot of information that that we're willing to look at, understanding it's not been subjected to peer review, just because it's incredibly important to get a look at it. And and time is of the essence. And, and things, most scientists are very reluctant to to say that something is so until they feel pretty confident it's it's true, and uh, and so making getting the right balance between the the credibility and the and that comes that the people think comes with peer review, which itself is not perfect, and learning about and getting the the, the time course more appropriate to the situation is is quite important. So I'm glad to see these major changes and and and. The practice of of, of science has, has been very important to me. I, I wanted to get your thoughts on how to further accelerate the shift towards more open science, because from my perspective, the many of the quote unquote prestigious journals ha- still have quite a strong grip on the market. And, and from my perspective, there's two big points of leverage. There's the scientists that publish in the journals who could choose to publish elsewhere. And then there's the funders who could mandate that 
everything be open access. To me, the funders seem like the greatest point of leverage because they're easier to coordinate. Would you agree or is there a different? Absolutely. No, I, I think when we began this campaign in 1999, I think we failed to appreciate just how powerful the funders could be. And indeed, the, the funders and, the, and in the case of the U.S., the major funder has been the U.S. government, and the U.S. government has, has gradually come along to the point where, in its latest decree just last year from the Office of Science and Technology Policy, there's there will be an absolute mandate that all U.S.-sponsored research be available instantaneously when it appears in the journal. You know, journals should still exist and 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 display their work in useful ways and think about new ways to make the work more useful. And I have no objection to people saying I'd rather be published in Journal X than in Journal Y. Um, but what's happened recently, well, not recently, over the last 30 years or so, is a reluctance on the part of many investigators to counter arguments made by these very prestigious journals because they have they have committed themselves to making their evaluations of their peers based on whether their peers are are publishing in what I call the CNS journals, Cell Nature Science journals. And those are you know, often usually journals publishing high quality work, but the competition to be published in those journals has accelerated beyond all reason and to a great extent because people use publication there as a shortcut right. for making evaluations about the quality of the work. And that simply seems wrongheaded and, and inconsistent with what the history of our field tends to show, which is that many great things get published in what we call specialty journals. That's a demeaning term that, that doesn't deserve to exist. But uh, right. anyway, I think I mean, certainly in Europe, there's now a, a a new move that has been sponsored by by the, the funders of research, which in many cases are charities, foundations, other organizations, societies. And and only sometimes governments, but they all have a the funders have a vested interest in ensuring their work gets widely distributed and widely used. And it's through those funders that that movement has finally, after twenty or more years, begun to move pretty rapidly toward open access for everything. But I think it's also important to remember that open access is a it's a it's a business plan. It's a way of of, of ensuring them that once your work is 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 published, everybody sees it. But there are a lot of other things to think about here. One is, can everybody afford to pay that fee? And in our field of biomedical science, it's generally the case, but not in all fields. And we have to take special precautions to be sure that people are still able to to publish their work in in places where they'll be seen and that the work actually ends up in public libraries and fully available. Those are additional challenges. and, And my own view is you should budget for the for these kinds of journals by assuming that not everybody's going to be able to pay and or to and then in addition to find ways to to compensate people who are legitimately unqualified to, to, to make a payment that's that's substantial because we do have to ensure that if we're going to include the developing world low and middle income countries and scientists working there in the this international adventure of doing science that they have a right to be heard just like anybody else. Couldn't agree more. I ha- I have one more question that I can't resist but asking. And it's a it's a tough one, but I and and feel free to tell me if it's unanswerable. But it's not often I get to ask a question like this, so I'm going to try. I I'd like to know from your perspective how close we are to understanding the fundamental principles of cancer, and and hopefully therefore defeating it. And and I I'm going to 
filibuster while I give you a second to think on this, but if it's possible for you to express it in percentage terms, that's great. If you think we're 80% there, but I suspect there may be a flip side where there are some things that are binary and unknowable, where there may be some breakthroughs that it's hard to say whether they're right around the corner, if it's going to take a really long time. So I'd love for you to talk through that general idea. How close are we to understanding and defeating cancer? And and can you express it as a prod, as a progress bar or is it a a little bit of an art rather than a science, maybe. I think point. it's worse than that. I think it's a, it's a fragmented picture that that, 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 and it's impossible to answer your question because there are some cancers that we know a lot, enough about. I mean, you have to ask, what, what is knowing enough? You can always know more because every cancer is slightly different. But when you know enough about a cancer that you can actually treat it successfully so, so it is not a, a health issue for the rest of that person's natural life, that that's strikes me as being success. And, and you know, for some diseases, we've reached that point. Every cancer type is somewhat different. There's obviously a lot of variability within each set of cancers, but, but there are some for which we know enough to be able to, to do prevention and treatment in a highly effective manner. And there are others, one of them I happen to work on, small cell lung cancer, but the pancreatic cancer, ovarian cancer, and some others, we really are only a small part of the way there. There is always going to be a lot more to learn about cancer in a more fundamental way, and whether those will have the, those will deliver knowledge that affects the way we anticipate them, that is, gauge risk, do take prevention steps, make early diagnosis, do a better job in treating the patients. That remains to be seen, and the cancer is going to remain a fertile field of research for some time because it's inherently so interesting and affects so many aspects of the basic behavior of, of biological systems, whether it's how information is, is conveyed, how mutations occur, how gene expression patterns are changed, how metabolism intersects with, with other functions of, a, of an organism, how the, a, a single cancer cell or a group of cancer cells affects the cells around them, vascular cells, the immune cells. These are all fascinating mysteries that will have implications for many other studies of disease. And that has proven to be true already. A lot of what we've learned about the basic workings of cells has come from cancer research because the tools largely, to link back to the beginning of our conversation, that come from the study of viruses that cause cancer have provided information about gene regulation and integrity of DNA and behavior of proteins that have been reflected in studies of hereditary neurological diseases and yes. and many other things. I, I had the pleasure of interviewing Alex Kagan the other day, who was co-leading this amazing piece of work with the London Zoo. I don't know if you've seen this, but they looked at cancer in 16 different mammalian species and, and came to some really fundamental understandings of changes in the mutation rate from very large mammals like the blue whale and elephant, they weren't included in their study, but blue whales, for example, there's a little bit of a paradox where they they ought to die really young given the from cancer, given the number of cell divisions and how long they live, but they've done well, this, some... You know, I, I totally endorse this kind of approach. Back some years ago when I was head of the National Cancer Institute, we initiated a program that still exists on called Provocative Questions. And one of the questions was, you know, why do such big animals have so such low cancer rates and small animals like mice have very high cancer rates? It doesn't make a whole lot of sense when you look at the at the animal. And uh, you know, new things are turning up all the time that yeah. may or may not explain what's going on. But to know that the elephant has 50 copies of the P53 tumor suppressor gene is inherently 
an interesting observation, even if it doesn't explain yes. the low cancer rates. Yeah, and, and they they found this fascinating result that basically every animal ends up with about the same number of somatic mutations at the end of their lifetime. So the short-lived animals have a very high mutation rate. The long-lived animals have a low mutation rate, but every animal ends up with around 3,000 mutations at the end of their life. So there's, like you said, there's more questions than answers. There's a a divine guidance here about mutation rates, but I do think it's interesting with respect to what underlies the, 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 the changes in our genome that have been now observed at the Sanger Center to occur with every cell division. So we're, we're mutant heterogeneous organisms from the time our fer- the fertilized egg that gives rise to us undergoes its first division. That's a pretty startling fact. Couldn't agree more. Well, I'd like to just say thank you. I really enjoyed the discussion. I, I really appreciate you taking the time to do this. Thank you. Good to see you. And thanks, everybody. We appreciate you tuning in to this great episode. If you have any feedback, you can email us at podcast at sonogenetics.com and More than anything, we'd appreciate if you shared this episode with a friend or left us a review on your favorite podcast player. Thanks, and we'll see you next time.